Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and welcome to another episode of Seen Any Good Films Lately. I've got some new reviews and recommendations for you and we go back to 96 to ask, where were you while we were getting high? Calling to us as Oasis fans was that sort of moment in history where you had to be there. My guest on this show is director Jake Scott, son of Ridley, but a hugely established pop video maestro and filmmaker in his own right. We trip down memory lane a bit to mark the release of Jake's first concert movie doc, Oasis Nebworth 96, Live Forever, cementing the mythology of the moment when 250,000 people came to watch Noel and Liam. We don the bucket hats and the attitude of summer 96 right after I tell you if I've seen any good films lately. Only one place to start this week, and that's with The Many Saints of Newark, your first must-see movie of the autumn season. Gotta do something about Dickie Malasani. What blow? I know you can get anything. Look at Dickie Malasani. He steps up, takes care of his family, takes care of all the business. If anybody tells anybody about this... How you doing on your merit badges? All kinds of good things. It's the one thing. Pain comes from always wanting things. But who do I know? I'm a murderer. I really like this. It's billed as a prequel to The Sopranos, conceived and written by that show's creator David Chase, and in a way it does chart the young life of Anthony Soprano, who's partly played by Michael Gandolfini, the actual son of the late Tony Soprano himself, James Gandolfini. But the best thing is, you don't really have to know any of that. It stands alone as a smashing little New York gangster movie. Yes, it's in the style of Goodfellas, with the voiceover and the lockups and the mistresses and the big meaty hands and the music and, yes, Ray Liotta. OK, it's not as good as Goodfellas, but very few things are. But The Many Saints of Newark is a lovely wallow in the genre. It's set partly amid the Newark race riots of 1967. I remember these playing a part in Philip Roth's American Pastoral and the subsequent film of that novel. But here they're central to the action in many ways, being used as a cover-up for violence and as a boiling point for the racial tensions that play out not only on the streets but in the underworld too. And that's probably this film's ace card for me, the balance of white and black tensions with Leslie Odom Jr.'s character representing a black element rarely considered in the mob movies we've seen before. Some of this is cleverly done by the music choices, where, for example, James Brown will fight to drown out Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, and they sort of battle with each other, one on the car radio, one in the garage radio. Very good, and it happens quite often. Other huge pluses in this film are the details, the meatballs, the faces, the costumes. Oscar nomination ahead for Amy Westcott, I'm sure. The production design of the houses and the cars, it's all top-notch. And the career-best performance of Alessandro Nivola as Dickie Moltisanti is definitely worth watching. He brings this silk and steel to the main part. He's a wise guy and a nice guy, and they wore away in his own head. And he's the uncle that young Tony Soprano looks up to. 
Now, if this film struggles slightly with not being a six-part TV series, which it really could have been, there are still some terrific set-piece scenes in it and some great lines. For example, when the young Tony, already struggling with mental health issues, yells that he doesn't want any part of this, his father, played by John Berntal, is left genuinely bewildered, standing in the street going, what this? What this? So if you like this, this, then this is exactly the sort of thing you'll like. It hits all the numbers. I came out doing the accent and wanting a big plate of spaghetti and meatballs. What do you want from a movie, huh? Now, for some different accents. We were not grateful to anybody for anything. Oasis was us, you know. In a sense, it belonged to the people. In a bigger sense, in a more important sense, it belonged to us. And they were there to see us. We weren't there to look at them. And that's what separated us from most bands. We flipped that we are not worthy on its head. But we are worthy. Enjoy it. We go back to the summer of 96, to Britpop and football's coming home and Cool Britannia and a change in the air. It felt like a time. And it's now getting its nostalgic moment and self-mythologising acclaim from those who were there. Myself included. And the director, Jake Scott, whose 1999 Highwayman film, Plunkett and McLean, was at the crest of the Brit film rise that happened just a few years later, probably as a result of the success of something like Oasis. Jake Scott was making videos with many of the leading bands of the era from The Verve and Oasis and Radiohead and R.E.M., And he was a natural fit when they found all this superb footage of Oasis at Nebworth. Their concerts I remember not going to very well when many of my mates did. But I was a showbiz reporter at the time. I'd interviewed Noel and Liam many times uh, at that point and I'd seen them a couple of times. I went to see them in Dublin and they were fantastic there too. Amazing live band with some electric chemistry uh, between them. So... Catching up with Jake in his LA office last week, I began by asking him why the time now was right for looking back, not in anger, but in fondness. It's a significant day, isn't it? I mean, it's a quarter of a century. Mm. And as you say, we've we've gotten older. But in that quarter of a century, a lot of us have had kids who are now in their teens or even a little bit older. And just through my own kids, really specifically my daughter Fifi, she's a... Uh, a drummer and a guitar player and is really into her music. And which I, I've got one kid who's really into music. I'm so happy. And she's obsessed by 90, all her friends, all of them, they're all obsessed by that mid-90s guitar bands, especially that period. So that does have a resonance. And it's a bit like when we were kids, you know, growing up, we were listening to, I was listening to sort of early 60s Scar and, you know, and we got into the psychedelic thing, you know, and we did some revivals of, and it does happen generationally. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping so. You know, I I think it does. I think that's the right answer. And no, and I was looking and looking back what your film started doing for me was then going back to trying to tell children, not that they like to listen, that, you know, that there was no mobile Mm. phones, that, you know, that it it looks it it doesn't look like 96 in your movie. It it looks almost like 1966. Some of it is so on the phone, you know, I realised, my God, it was it really has changed in that 25 years, perhaps more in the 25 years than it did before. Absolutely right. And you until you see it, you don't quite you you don't remember it that way, do you? Because we all had flip phones. That's what I remember. We had flip phones, Motorola's (laughs) and Nokia's. Right. And then. 
but nobody used them. We didn't hold them up like we do did a lighter. And uh, so there isn't that interruption. There isn't that distraction. They're all completely engaged, the audience mm. at Nebworth. They're singing along, but they're in it and they're in it together. And there's a great sense of unity. And then, as I say, they're not distracted, you know. Were you there? No, I had a ticket and I couldn't go. No. No, I know. I'm gutted. (laughs) I'm watching this thing. You know, I had a bloody ticket and and I was stuck in Prague. Um, (laughs) And uh, and I couldn't go. Everybody else went. Well, that's what I remember. I remember. (laughs) uh, And I I think, didn't Robbie do? Robbie did Nebworth. Was it a couple of years later, a few years later, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I went to that because I thought, uh, which I didn't, it wasn't really my thing, actually, but it was a great night. It was a great night at Nebworth. It was a really good night out. Uh, but the Oasis gig, they were electric. I did see them in um, Dublin, in, mm. whatever that's, was it there, Lansdowne Road or Cork Park? Yeah. Was it? And they were just matter. fantastic as a band. And as someone says in your in your doc, you know, they're not, you know, they just stand there. There's blo- blokes and guitars, a couple of <laughs> a bloke on the drums and enough basses, right. and that's it. And that's all you get. And I think that's what you, was really hard to do in your film, to capture that and make that, keep that going interestingly, because we're so used to sort of visuals now and rock docs that are so kind of cut up. And this one wasn't. It just showed the performance. Yeah. I mean, the musicianship really stands right. up, you know, and they're all good, you know. And as Noel says, you're only as good as your front man. And he was he was at his best, you know, he's not a note wrong. And the, the band are, are tight, mm. really tight. And they really deliver. That was very helpful. Right. So there's not a bum note there on top of which you see the camaraderie between them, both the, the, the brothers and also the, what I call, I've always called rather pretentiously called a symbiotic relationship between the, the, the crowd, the audience and the band. But there is this sort of circular thing going on. I, I really enjoy, really had fun with uh, Struan, the editor, digging into the the antics on stage, and Liam is very funny, and the, and and the mucking about and the and the and the banter is just brilliant. That so little, I think he's, there's a little sequence where he's in the you know the buggy, and it reminded yeah. me of the banana splits. Do you remember those? It's funny because I actually said the same thing when we were looking at that footage. Oh, should we put it in or should we put it? Should we put it in? You know, but it's so naughty and delinquent, but it's brilliant, you know. Yeah, really. I think it gives it a real, yeah. real charm to it. I think that the um, that time that you recreate, when I, I presume you recreated it, uh, I don't know, you hired some mini metros or whatever, you managed to get some sort of 90s looking phones or whatever. You, those, those little bits were really interesting to recreate as the, as the little sort of inserts that go with the memories of the fans. Hopefully you don't notice it. You, Not at you all. Buy that I, it's was, there. I was thinking that yeah. you found this footage, but it can't because it matches their memory so perfectly. No, we, we shot it, and and we there's a, it's it's layered throughout the whole film, and it was just a way of making contact with the stories a little bit, little bit more deeply. You know, you you just a little bit further into mm. it, a little bit more intimate with the with the individual stories, and also. The mini metro, you know, the metro and the and the phones, the flip phones and the C fax and the and the yeah. redial button and the getting on the train and getting your tickets at the record shop and all of that stuff is an anomaly now. And and we felt that kids, hopefully, kids see this and it, it, to them it's amazing, you know, that, it would, that anyone ever got anywhere, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but we did, 
I mean, I remember used to. I mean, my 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 preferred method of getting tickets was um, touts. Yeah, oh, I, I love a tout. <laughs> I used to stand outside every venue. I you know go see the specials. Go get my first time I saw the specials was a tout. <laughs> you know, it's, it was always the thing, wasn't it? Liam uh, is is in this film, but he, he wouldn't give you any uh, any voiceover memories. No, it's all Noel, is it? What, where are they at at the moment? I don't think Liam wanted to say much because he felt the film would speak for itself, you know. And because he's so, you know, obviously it's his mainly his vocal in the in the film, and he's and he's quite lively. I think he wanted to give it to his brother, really, you know. And uh, I, I, Liam's. Liam does make one comment and he was very, you know, he was very uh, aware of the film. He watched the film a couple of times. He had a few notes, nothing too, nothing too difficult. They both are invested in it, but Noel I had in first and before there was always this, maybe Liam will, maybe Liam won't, but Noel spoke so eloquently and at length and was very generous I genuinely believe that Liam said, "Well, why do I need to talk?" You know, like he's, he said, he said everything I would say, yeah. and, and Bonehead too. I know? think that, I think that's probably how it always was, to be honest. Yeah. Back, back I think the- everyone's looking for the the fight, you know. And I don't, I just don't. I, I never got any sense of that. I think Noel says some lovely things about his brother in the film, and it was nice to hear. It's yeah. amazing to remember to remember how electric they were and how mm. uh, what a sort of how hot they were and how meteoric they were. I forgot that in two years they were playing in front of, you know, from the water rats to to, to one hundred twenty five thousand people. I forgot, and I was there co- covering most of it and talking to them and just I couldn't believe, remember how amazing. And that that's was. what's that's what's amazing. And I I always think I mean my mate James Gay Reese produced the, the Supersonic. Yeah, I have Supersonic to thank for wanting to do this film. And then when I came onto this, I was blessed with this incredible footage that I had nothing to do with, <laughs> you know, so um, this amazing on the sit, you know, eyewitness account of Nebworth 96, you know, and um, brilliantly, uh, brilliantly shot and covered by that crew. What were they going to uh, do with the stuff anyway? What it was, just, what was, it was just always going to lie about? Set in an archive. Yeah. They, they always knew they were going to do a live album because they had such good recording. And as I understand it, there was always, they'd always spoken of doing this, concert film there was a sort of rough assembly done way back that was i think you saw sent segments of it in supersonic mm. but supersonic really stop ends where this you know it really ends at Nebworth, and then and then then this is you could almost say this would be a, the follow-on film the sequel you know that this is so anybody that hasn't seen supersonic see supersonic before you see this yeah it makes sense you're, you're introduced yeah. to the characters first absolutely yeah, yeah exactly. classic classic stuff what was yeah, the first classic. film you saw in the cinema jake scott chitty chitty bang bang <laughs> odeon leicester square oh yeah you started at the top yeah odeon leicester square and we went to see chitty chitty bang bang because my dad i think my, it was my dad who took us and he wanted we wanted to go see the railway children i think this is what happened thank god it wasn't the railway children i think it was that was what happened and we ended up with chichi chichi bang bang that was my first um or that's my first memory of going to the cinema yeah well that's that's what we that's what we wanted yeah and then it affects you forever i guess yeah as you said (laughs) if thank god it wasn't the railway children you probably run screaming from the train (laughs) i think they both they both got lionel jeffries in it i don't know as well both got p o s h yeah (laughs) See, I knew you enjoyed yourself. 
not an unusual car. Daddy made it. Oh, and it actually goes. It's called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That's a curious name for a motor car. But that's the sound it makes. Listen. Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, you pretty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We love you and. Pretty chitty bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang loves us too. Hi, low, anywhere we go on chitty chitty we depend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fender friend. Bang bang, chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fender friend. Have you got any posters on your? On your when you were a kid, did you have posters, film posters on your wall, or a, or a student has film posters on your wall? My most prized possession, which was taken down after I came back pissed from the uh, pub and I think I threw up my dad on the doorstep <laughs> um, uh, was my my absolute prized possession that was on my wall was the the poster for a razor head that is a gorgeous and that poster. was because I had the haircut and the whole thing because I could sort of fit it into the psychobilly rockabilly thing as well you know so that tall flat top and I used to wear those d-mob suits and it was uh and uh, I had the eraser head poster, but that came down, so did the hair. And then um, uh, as punishment. But right here, right now, I don't know if I'll turn the camera. You're going to show this because up there on the wall, there's two posters, the Mean Streets. I can see it, yeah. And there's Come and See, which is an amazing Russian film, a war film by Ellen Klimov. The Mean Streets one's actually signed by De Niro. Oh, that is is one of the best I've I've had on the show. That is extraordinary. Isn't that great? And and that is, A, it's one of my most favourite films. There's two of my most favourite films, but Mean Streets is really one of my favourite films, one of my top ten. And when I, um, you mentioned Plunkett earlier, When when I did Plunkett, my Uncle Tony got me that, poster from Bob De Niro because they'd worked together on the fan and they knew each other they were friends and he had and he knew I loved the film so when I first morning first day on Plunkett McLean I was given note you know card from my dad and you know you know people wishing me luck and that was what I got from my uncle it was a Mean Streets poster signed by Bob De Niro and it says to Jake good luck Bobby De Niro oh isn't that good that is very very good Yeah, that's too bad. Isn't that too bad? Huh, Teresa? So, Kitty's out. He's making any plans yet or what? When is he getting married? Is he going to get engaged? Don't be smart, Johnny. What do you mean? I ain't smart. I'm stupid, remember? You know what I mean? I'm a strunz. Remember, I'm so stupid, you got to look out for me, right? Right? Yeah. Was there a film that changed your life, Jake? Either by watching it or make, being on the set or make, making it yourself? Yeah, I mean, I thought about this because I, I saw some of the questions before and I, I was really thinking about because obviously there's a few films that, that feature 
in everybody's life when mm. if you're really into the film. I think the one that woke me up, really woke me up, was a was a Werner Herzog film called Aguirre Wrath of God. Yeah. And my dad screened it at the Coronet Cinema, which was a little tiny screening room in Soho. It was school holidays. Me and my brother Luke were bored at home. You know, I think it was a long, it was a summer holidays. And I think it was probably, yeah, it was probably summer holidays. And, you know, he worked, mum worked. We were always at home. It was like, all right, you two come in this morning. I've got to screen this little film called The Geary Wrath of God. And this is, you know, eight-seater <laughs> Russia's theatre and a basement on Wardour Street and we watched a Gary Roth of God and it, it literally changed my life it changed my entire understanding of what cinema was and um, and I still watch that film and Klaus Ginsky playing a conquistador mm. going in search of El Dorado I guess is, is that what your dad wanted or did you just wanted to give you something else to do that wasn't you know, playing no I don't think he was trying to I think it was an education and I think yeah. we were lucky as kids because we had a dad who did something that artistic and you know he's a filmmaker and and it was very much a part of our upbringing but it was it was also um because we were you know school holidays he said right come in the office you're going to start being a runner at 12 13 and getting lunches for directors and film cans and you know going to edit editors and taking date you know, rushes to you know yeah optical houses there's, and a, there's a disappeared world the people with film canisters walking up and down Wardour Street Wardour Street I know isn't it now it's just coffee cups <laughs> even yeah. now, now it's, you're lucky if it's anything to be on the last 18 yeah. months have been such yeah. a, so difficult for that area yeah, I miss it, really it, is. You know, miss it so much sad to see if I could take you to any film set back in time and you could drop in on one and I know you're lucky as the sort of you know son of a of, of, of one of the greats and you've probably been on some amazing film sets but anyone back you know old Hollywood silent movies Bollywood anywhere you want to go as a film set you can visit either for just the one scene famous scene being made or just you know hang out for the entire shoot where would you go one of the most perfect sequences I think in cinema and I use it as an example of how a director can conduct right so you could compare a great director to a conductor like Leonard Bernstein, right? You, you, you can, because he's, he's really in control of an orchestra, mm. a film set, a film crew. It's like an orchestra. And Francis Ford Coppola in The Godfather One rendered, told this story. Michael Corleone goes to see his father in hospital. He's been shot. He thought he was going to die. It's the sequence where Michael Corleone goes to see his father and realizes he has to be moved. And then Enzo, the baker's son, shows up with the flowers yeah. to thank him. And because he's been now he's married to the girl that the you know that his father had gone to see the godfather at the beginning. Anyway, this sequence is in which Michael Corleone protects his father, moves his father from from his bed, his room, to another part of the of the uh, hospital. And Enzo stands outside and puts his collar up and makes him smoke a cigarette and he throws the flowers away and he pulls his fedora down and the, the rival gang go by and they decide against coming in and killing the Godfather, right? Finishing him off. And that's like a sustained sequence where the tension is held for, I, it seems like six minutes yeah. long. At the end of which Sterling Hayden turns up and they he says, hold him. And, he, and, he, and Michael Corleone gets punched in the gut. Of course, we see what happens to Sterling Hayden, the corrupt cop. But that is one of the greatest, I think, one of the greatest 
sequences of sustained tension in the history of cinema and i and everything is working in that and i think that i really it's got you know mark brando's in there sterling hayden who's <laughs> one of my heroes you know and, and and a young al pacino it's the most amazing I and mean, one of the greatest films ever made so yeah that's yeah absolutely that's and, and a really good choice in that film as well lots of people go for the different you know the, the final mm. sequence or the shooting sequence or the wedding sequence but that that is a beautiful sequence there because it sort of means it, it's 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 a it's a tiny bit you know it's the kind of what if you know if it hadn't moved it's, it. it's pivotal mm. Everything pivots on that scene in that film. It's everything changes. Michael Corleone becomes the Godfather. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a shift, isn't it? He literal mm-hmm. shifts the, shifts mm-hmm. the Godfather and, and takes the throne in a way. Brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant choice. If you uh, you know were, were doing some research for the film that you just made, Nebworth, did you did you look at other rock movies? Did you did, are there some great concert movies that you had in mind? I mean, I I, I love all the ones that a lot of people, you know, I love Gimme Shelter and mm-hmm. Monterey Pop and, you know, that LCD sound system one I thought was fantastic. Yeah, that's cool. um, it's a great film, but none of those, um, none of, not one of them. Uh, <laughs> to be honest with you, what happened was a couple of days before, or maybe a couple of days after I got the call from Alec, I was watching on Criterion on streaming with my son. We watched Frankenheimer's Grand Prix. And the opening of that that film has this. Remember, it's got this the Monte Carlo, Monaco Grand Prix, and it's all split screen. And that was the first thing I went. And I only do the split screen on one track on on this film on Oasis and they're both. Uh, but that was the first thing. That was a, that was the launch point. And I kept going back to it. But no, that when I realised that it had to be the fans that were speaking in this film, that you were really seeing it through the eyes of the fans. I went back all the way back pre-rock and roll to Burt Stone's Jazz on a Summer's Day. And that's what I kept looking at. Do you know what? It came to my, I thought, it can't be. I've just done a lot of work on Jazz on a Summer's Day. They made a little film for Curzon. Uh, Have you really? Yeah, uh, about I... how women are now the sort of the voice of jazz. Which you know, But we showed Jazz on a Summer's Day at a festival I did in Wales, that Green Man Festival. And we showed it there. And then I interviewed all the, the new young jazz generation, Kokoroko and Emogene Thackeray and Nubia Garcia, yeah, yeah. to say, well, you know, they, it was so, so blokish in that Burt Stone film. But we got, I said to the, 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 the camera guy, I said, you've got to get all the B-roll. It's all about the, it's all about the people and how they, they changed Absolutely. the look. Absolutely. No, it's, it's And yours is that as well. That's why I liked it, because there's just all the people. I just wanted to see all these people look like Noel That's Gallagher. It. I kept do, I kept going back there, because, yeah. you know, of course, and also what's interesting about, about that film um, was it was the first time that rock and roll had been played at the Newport Jazz Festival when um, Chuck Berry plays Sweet Little Sixteen? Yeah, absolutely, and it changed, the audience are a bit like, "Oh, I don't know. I've come to see yeah, yeah. I've this yeah. Monk. What's this? What's going yeah. on here?" Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, but it was, and it, you concentrate on the on the, the transport because they've got all the yachts in in Jazz on a Summer's Day, and you've got all the kind it, of and Jimmy Jeffrey. It's the Jimmy Jeffrey sequence. It's a, I, I, this is a film that I've obsessed by um uh, since i was very young my mum showed it to me that and the girl can't help it that was the two films henry grimes and roy haynes remain on stage to accompany one of the complete originals of music a man who lives his music a man who thinks his music and it's possible to say that he lives and thinks of little else we can't describe him exactly as daring because I think he is unconcerned with any opposition to his music. 
He concerns himself with such elements as the, the quarter tone, which he doesn't find in our Western scale, so he'll strike two adjoining notes on the piano, two adjoining keys to imply the missing note that's in between. Ladies and gentlemen, Thelonious Monk. If you uh, had a, a musical number of any film, like a, a musical moment, it could be a dance number in a musical or just a, 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 you know, a moment that's scored by a great bit of music. What's your standout musical moment in the movies? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, that's, that's a big one because there's many. M- music and movement, it's got to be... Actually, I went, and this kind of ties into what was maybe the next question, but I went to see at the BFI just before covid in, I think in January of 2020, they did a, or was it just before Christmas, they had a Hollywood musicals season at the, at the BFI. And they were, I don't know that they were remastered. They were digitally remastered. I think they can't have been new prints. I doubt they'd be prints. It'd be remasters, wouldn't they? 4K scans. 4K yeah. remaster. And I'd never seen it on screen, but I went to see Singing in the Rain. And there are two numbers in that film. And it's not singing in the rain. There's make him laugh. Yes. Donald O'Connor. It's like you got to be kidding me. The <laughs> dancing in this, and Gene Kelly, and Gene Kelly, and then there's Moses supposes, and these two sequences are two of the. I think the two of the greatest. Se- uh, maybe Hell's a Popping the, the five, six minute Lindy Hop sequence and that, but those two, which is the Harlem music, you know, and the Harlem dance, but the the. The masculinity of Gene Kelly's performance, which which was really what pushed dance with Fred Astaire, of course, pushed dance forward. You know, um, that a guy could dance and express himself in that way was, is so wonderful as well. But Donald O'Connor is a really overlooked uh, figure in in Hollywood musicals. You know, unless you're a real aficionado. And I, I when I saw the question, I was always like, it's not obvious. It's obvious to me. It's to make him laugh. <laughs> The, the invention of it is just extraordinary. Every time yeah. he falls over and comes up and goes up the wall, but then he sits on a thing and the, the hat is hilarious. You know, the slap and there's no, and his athleticism. There's no CGI. There's no post effects. There's no enhancement. It's re- And there's no cuts. Make them laugh. Make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad said be an actor, my son. But be a comical one. They'll be standing in lines. For those old honky-tonk monkey shines Or you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh I love your passion. Jake Scott, yeah. I'm going to have to leave it there, to be honest. It's right. brilliant. Um, I, congratulations on, on bringing back 96 to me. I could smell it again. Um, oh, thanks so much. Great talking to you. That's it. Safe to say that I have now finished The White Lotus, did a double episode whammy binge of the final two episodes. You've just got to see it. That's one of the best little series I've seen. It's full of awful rich people just being awful. I don't really want another season of it. I quite like it as a one-off, but, you know, if there was another one, yes, I'd definitely watch it. Of course I would. But you'd want those same guests back in a way. 
there are excellent performances all round. Jennifer Coolidge in particular. Alexandra Daddario. Do look out for her episode of Seen Any Good Films Lately too. That's about a year ago. Uh, there's the pouty Sydney Sweeney. God, she's a piece of work. And then Murray Bartlett, an actor new to me. He's superb as Armand, the maitre d'. Just dive into the world of white privilege satire. White Lotus. Okay, I'll be back with another episode later in the week. I just had to bring you the hot review of The Many Saints of Newark, which is in cinemas from the 22nd of September, and to talk to Jake Scott, because the Oasis doc is in cinemas from the 23rd and the 24th of September. A really big cinema event worth going to the cinemas for that. It'll be out on Home Entertainment uh, in uh, November, Uh, but... Until then, thanks to Jake Scott for joining us and thanks to Kate Dawkins for editing it all together so quickly and so beautifully as ever. Let's go out with a 96 anthem, shall we? Maybe I just wanna fly.